Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women. If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. So Isaac called for Jacob and blessed him. Then he commanded him, do not marry a Canaanite woman. Go at once to Paddan Aram, to the house of your mother's father Bethuel. Take a wife from yourself there, from among the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham, so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner, the land God gave to Abraham. Then Isaac sent Jacob on his way, and he went to Paddan Aram, to Laban, son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob and Esau. Now Esau learned that Isaac had blessed Jacob and had sent him to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that when he blessed him, he commanded him, Do not marry a Canaanite woman, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and mother and gone to Paddan Aram. Esau then realized how displeasing the Canaanite women were to his father Isaac. So he went to Ishmael and married Mahalath, the sister of Nebaioth, and daughter of Ishmael, son of Abraham, in addition to the wives he already had. Jacob left Bathsheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth with its top reaching the heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I am taken and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear so that I return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God and this stone that I have set up as a pillar will be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give you a tenth. So here we are in Genesis 27 verse 46. And we're again diving into a family that God is working his purposes out. Isaac's family. Particularly the light starts shining more closely on Jacob. And as we've seen over the last two weeks, uh, we have looked at quite a flawed, broken family. A family that needs help. A family that needs grace. And as I've been reading and preparing for this sermon and reading through these chapters in Genesis, I must admit, I've been feeling pretty melancholy. <laughs> so you can't help but, as you read this stuff, go, wow, yeah, family life is tough. It's broken. Uh, I think of my extended family and just think of all the stuff that's uh, gone on. I think, wow, there is some hurt there. And then on Monday, I don't know how you use the bank holiday Monday as we, uh, in, in this country, had a state funeral for our longest-serving monarch. And whether it was gratitude 
for her service and committed faith. I wonder what you reflected on, that gratitude perhaps. Maybe it was grief because as we go into national mourning, there is a way in which that connects with the own sorrows and bereavements we have held and carried. Was it comfort because nations and people from different backgrounds were drawn together at this one point in time to give thanks for a life well lived? Maybe it was just disinterest. The pomp, the ceremony means nothing. What on earth is going on? What's all the fuss? But as I watched this royal family, and particularly at that point where they processed behind, uh, processed behind the gun carriage, I was struck by just how much hurt and grief and pain that family had been through over the decades. Affairs, scandals, uh, bitter divisions and fallouts, greed and entitled behavior, strong personalities jostling for positions of influence, the result of sin both of their own as well as sin from other people. See, even though they lived in palaces, they weren't perfect. They were just as flawed, just as in need of God's grace as the rest of us. And there is hope. The Queen's faith celebrated her clear commitment to Jesus Christ, an anchor, a foundation of her life's Work is a sign that there is a redeemer. There is light in the darkness. And so I want us to hold on to this during these chapters over the weeks as we look into Genesis uh, and here particularly in chapter 27 and 28 because we see a deeply fractured family and our families are flawed. But we need to hold on to this big statement that the Lord blesses flawed families. That's where he's at work. Last week, as we looked at chapter 27, um, just as a recap, Jacob and his mother, Rebecca, had plotted to make sure that Jacob, her favorite son, gets Isaac's blessing, this prophetic promise, this blessing of God on the firstborn son. But God had always said it's going to go to the second one. His grace was disruptive and reversing things. And Esau, his older brother, is then left with nothing except his desire to murder his brother and a father's prayer in 27, 39 to 40 that really sounds more like Esau's life is just going to be one of conflict and struggle. What's left is a family falling apart. Rebecca is trying now to find a way to protect her favorite son from Esau. And the best way of doing that is sending Jacob back to her brother's home in Haran, where Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, had come from. She doesn't know that Jacob will be gone for 20 years. And there's no record of her ever seeing him again. Her scheming is to get Jacob the blessing and it's cost her. She has to send him away in order to keep him alive but she's lost the son she's idolized. There's a broken mother. And her plan to save Jacob needs Isaac's help, and that's where we land in verse 46. Rebecca isn't afraid to take initiative. She finds common ground with Isaac. She appeals to something in this loveless marriage. She appeals to her husband on a grounds that they both share, that something they can agree on. They don't like Esau's wives. <laughs> And it's from that point in verses 34, um, sorry, back in 20, chapter 26, we're told about Esau's wives, and, and this is what's written in 26, verses 34 to 35. We're told Esau was 40 years old, and he married Judith, daughter of Beri the Hittite, and also Basmouth, daughter of Elon the Hittite. They were a source of grief to Isaac and Rebekah. That's the history. 
And it seems that Isaac has passively just let Esau go off and find his wives from Canaan rather than providing wisely for him like his father Abraham had done. Well, why were they so grieved by these women? Uh, could it be a lack of spiritual interest in the Lord God? Were they, did they follow other gods? Uh, were they argumentative or controlling daughter-in-laws? Was Esau too busy spending time with them? We, we don't know. But there's a battle, there's a conflict. And whatever the case, Rebecca and Isaac together are not going to make the same mistake with Jacob. He's summoned to the father's tent and he's commanded to leave. But even there, in this moment, there's a profound moment of God's grace. Did you see? Did you see it in his speech? Did you hear it? It's a point where Jacob and Isaac actually fall into the background because the Lord comes in with these words in verse 28, verse 3. May God Almighty, El Shaddai, bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham. No, this blessing won't come through Jacob's scheming. So that you may take possession of the land where you now live as an alien and the land God gave Abraham. Now, this is not Isaac's plan. This is God's plan. A plan that ultimately means people from all nations of the world become and have the chance to follow Jesus Christ. So there's sweetness and bitterness here as we see a family tangled up with their dysfunctional relationships, yet God is at work not giving up on them. And can you see the obstacles to God fulfilling his promises are his people? That's the irony. But through this parental failure, through the deceit, through the hatred between brothers and manipulation and misery, God works out his purpose. There's hope because the Lord blesses even flawed families. And maybe for some of us, this feels very close to our own unique experiences of flawed family. Perhaps you're carrying real hurts. Perhaps you're still trying to forgive family members. Maybe there are painful divisions you're living with. Perhaps there's favoritism that has really hurt and sunk deep. Are you trying too hard to get your parents or your spouses or your children's approval? Stop striving. Stop striving. Accept God's peace. Turn to him who is there for us. You see, there is hope. For the Lord Jesus isn't put off by messy families. He lived in one too. His, his family at different points, at one point in particular in Mark's gospel, we, they think he's mad. They rush into his teaching to try and pull him out and get him home and try and figure out what on earth is going on. Uh, his siblings didn't believe who he was until after the resurrection. We're told that in John chapter 7 and, and 1 Corinthians 15. He knows our families. He knows our history. He put us in them. He also holds them accountable for the hurt and wrong they've caused. He holds us accountable for our actions too. And he's willing to forgive and redeem us. He's willing to work in those relationships to bring redemption when we come to him. 
And as the curtain closes on Isaac, Rebecca, and Jacob's relationship, I was deeply struck this week thinking about the need for families, particularly families to make wise decisions together. How much of this would have been solved if husband and wife sat down and chatted and prayed and they had God's promise that had been given to them when the boys were born, like, I don't know, engraved on a great big rock which they carried around with them and said, this is non-negotiable. That's how we do things. We pray into this. We know our sons. There's going to be something kooky going on with God's blessing. The second's going to get it, not the first. But we don't have to make it an issue. It's blessing. We can go God's way. How many of our decisions just are off the cuff because we're going with oh, what fits us best at any one moment? You see, the Apostle Paul prays that the Philippian Christians together, so he's talking both there of their personal experiences, but as a church family, he says he wants them to discern what is best so that they may be pure and blameless for the day that Jesus returns. Doesn't that change our decision-making as believers? Each one of us will have so many important decisions to make in our lives. And it's not just the big ones that are coming up, whether it's about relationships or where we're going to live or buying a house or whatever it is, but the thousands of ones that we make on a weekly basis, which are the trajectory for where we're heading longer term. We have so many important decisions. So will your parents, so will your siblings, your brothers and sisters, your children, your nieces, your nephews. All the things they face. Surely, practically, this is a wake-up call to ask God to, to work, to give us, to give them the wisdom beyond our abilities. As Melissa Kruger puts it in her prayer book, to discern what is best, both in how to live and how to believe. Discern what is best and how to live and how to believe. I know many in our families reject Jesus. They're looking for love, peace, and purpose in everything and anything else but God. And that hurts. And we can feel weak and futile and even like we're not helping the cause at all because they see us warts and all. Let's keep depending on God in prayer to be at the heart of our families to be at the heart of this church family, to make decisions with an eternal perspective. So this week, are we seeking to live out in the power of the Holy Spirit to help us live out Jesus' love with our families, with each other? Are we looking to see his redemptive work in flawed families? Because that's what he promises. But as we move into chapter 28, and here in verse 10, the scene shifts. Jacob's parents and Esau are now in the rearview mirror. The young man who was content to stay at home among the tents, we're told in chapter 25, verse 27, close to his mum, not going too far, nice and comfortable, is now facing a 500-mile journey to Haran, which is in Turkey. I've just put this map up. I love biblical maps. It takes me ages to work out where on earth they are in terms of our modern contemporary maps, but... Once you get there, it's really rewarding. But you'll see there, this sort of route, there's a trade route from the bottom of the arrow down in the south to the top. That's where Jacob's walking. That's where he's traveling. 
I wonder how he would have felt if you were in his shoes or his sandals. How would you feel? I wonder whether this word sums it up alone. Jacob is going back to where Abraham came from when the Lord told him to leave Haran for the promised land in Canaan. But Abraham had his wife. He had his nephew. He had possessions. He had other people with him that were part of his tribe. Whereas Jacob has himself. Jacob doesn't even have a decent pillow, we're told. It's a bit like that feeling when you've arrived in a new city or, or you're starting school or university or the night before a new job or there's an anxious, that anxious knot in your stomach. All the questions flying around your head. How will I manage? And as nighttime falls, he's forced to sleep under the stars and that is not idyllic. That isn't like a, oh, what a lovely getaway. No, this is dangerous. You see, at this point, Jacob is stuck between a rock and a hard place. He's got a murderous brother back home and an uncertain welcome in Haran. And there's a strong possibility of being mugged, beaten up, or even worse, and left for dead on the road. And we're given this intriguing detail in verse 11. Did you see it as the passage was read out? It's one of those eyewitness memory bits. Like, why else would you talk about a stone? Because it's, it's so significant. It's memorable. It happened. Jacob taking one of the stones that he put under or around his head. Now, that phrase is used later in the Old Testament when David comes across King Saul asleep. And in 1 Samuel 16, it's used there three times to describe where King Saul's spear and his water jug was. Like his spear and his jug were next to his head. Why? Because when he's thirsty, he wants to drink. And if he's in danger, he grabs the spear. So there's an argument to say that the stone wasn't just a, oh, makeshift pillow. Yeah, it could be that. But also, it's protection. If something comes for me, what have I got? A stone. It's his protection. And here again, we see the bright light of God's grace because it's at this lowest, weakest moment, this most vulnerable of moments for Jacob, that he has a life-changing encounter. He's, he's reached. Verse 12, he dreams. Now, throughout the Bible, dreams are significant. Dreams mean something. Dreams are God revealing his purposes. And Jacob sees this stairway resting on earth, reaching up to heaven. This structure connects earth with heaven. Now in Genesis, we've already come across another structure that's trying to get us to heaven. Um, it's the Tower of Babel. And here's a picture um, that comes from the ESV Study Bible. It's there um, from one of the towers that you'd find in ancient Mesopotamia and how it was used in worship all these stairways that led higher and higher to the altar where the sacrifices would go, getting closer and closer, trying to reach up to the gods in heaven. And yet the Tower of Babel, as that grew in Genesis 11, we see it still nowhere because God comes down to look at it and then frustrates this human rebellion making a name for themselves by scattering them. But in Jacob's dream, we see something different. What are we told? What are the angels doing? 
They're ascending, they're going up, and they're coming down. These are God's messengers. He's getting an insight into the heavenly realm. These messengers are going about God's business into his courtroom, coming out of it. Again, we see this in Job 1. They're, they're all over the place. They're coming in to tell God what's going on, going off, doing his work. Uh, Psalm 91.11 describes God commanding his angels to protect his people. And Jacob's seeing this reality, something veiled from us because it would blow our minds. But here he sees it in this dream. And as Jacob follows the staircase upwards and above it, there's the Lord, the Lord God who's over all of creation. But in that moment as well, if you look at the footnote, he's above it or he's beside Jacob. Well, it can be both. The Lord is over it all, but he's right there with him. Press pause there. Given all that Jacob has done so far, all that we know of him, his character, his scheming, his lack of living faith in the Lord, what do you think... God's message is going to be to him in this dream. How would you write God's message? Yeah? I know what I'd do. If it's a dream, I'd make it really scary. You know, turn up the fire imagery or something, or is it sharks that get you going, have a few sharks in there? Ah! You know, come in with the, Jacob, you know, you're in trouble, sort of voice. All the effects, bring it on, and slam him. Yeah? Because that's what we think God does. But what does he say? It's mind-blowing, isn't it? Verse 13 and 15. I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you're lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. He said that to Abraham in Genesis 13. You and you will spread out to the west and the east and the north and the south. Again, he's reiterating what he told Abraham in chapter 13. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Now listen to this. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. God doesn't say a word about how he messed up in chapter 27. <laughs> he restates a promise to Abraham and Isaac. Even though Jacob has no children, he's not even married. Where are the numerous descendants coming from? Even though Jacob is leaving the promised land, he will return. It will be his home. How? And there's this new dimension, something personal that speaks right into his isolation and uncertainty. I am with you. I'm watching over you, wherever you go. Can you hear it? Can you hear this? This is the good shepherd speaking, the Lord of Psalm 23, the God who cares, who loves, who leads, who provides, who protects his people. And several centuries later, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah and he uses Jacob to call his people Israel. He uses that name to grab their attention. Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, do not fear for I am with you. As they're facing exile, as they're going to be taken out of the land, this is the promise given to his people again, his church. Do not be dismayed for I am your God. 
I will strengthen you and help you. Isaiah 41. And where do we go to hear those promises again? On the lips of Jesus, the great commission. I'm with you always. He is the good shepherd who laid down his life for us. Isn't this breathtaking? Really? It's astounding. Can you see how undeserved this promise is? Jacob hasn't even apologized. He hasn't even twisted God's arm. This is outrageous. God reached down to him. God meets with this cheating schemer to save him and to change him. And at this point, we should be thinking it's scandalous. I could see how God may be coming down and helping someone who's uh, in poverty or in real need or is a humble and devout person. But a man like this, what is going on? A deceiver and a cheat. And you see, it, it should cut our hearts because instinctively we think we can build the staircase to God by our own effort. The good things we've done, the hard work we've put into our jobs or school or uni, the plans we have of being a nice person most of the time. Being a nice person when people are looking at me. Being good, doing some charitable stuff. We keep building the stairs. But they're going nowhere. They're crumbling. They can't take the weight. These are ladders that can never reach God's holy perfection, like trying to stand on a chair and touch the moon. And the scandal is that God would come down to us, that he would save any of us, whether royal or criminal, rich or poor, decent or decadent. We're all like Jacob. We're these self-centered sinners pushing God out of our lives. And the scandal is, in his love, Jesus Christ died on a cross, taking the full weight of God's judgment at our rebellion saving us from the hell of his anger forever. You see, it is Jesus who is the savior, the solution, the stairway. He makes that explicit when he's talking to Nathaniel in John chapter 1. Nathaniel was astonished that Jesus had had this supernatural insight about him in this encounter, and that encounter convinced Nathaniel to follow Jesus as God, declare him, you're the son of God. And yet Jesus says, that's nothing compared to what you will see. He then says, very truly, I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Can you see what Jesus has done? He's taken Jacob's encounter and said, I am it. It's me. This is how you get to God. This vision Jacob has is fulfilled in Jesus, the true staircase. He's the only way to God. He comes down to earth so that he could bring us into the eternal life with God. And it's a gift we mustn't ignore. We shouldn't let it pass us by. And we see that this gift has an impact. It changes Jacob. He's a changed man. He could have woken up and dismissed that dream as just off the charts, something to forget about and move on. But he knew, undeniably, he had encountered God. It leads him to worship God. In verse 16, what does he say? Surely the Lord is in this place, and I was unaware of it. How awesome is this place? It's like, I just thought we were sort of outside Luz, in some desert area. But no, God is here. This is none other than his house, the gate of heaven. 
Jacob's actions show real change taking place in him. So this ordinary place becomes important enough to call Bethel the house of God. He sets up this stone that was his protection as a reminder, using some of the oil from his packed lunch, who knows, to show it was unique, that it was set apart to the Lord God in a reminder of what he has promised, of this encounter, of the fact that God is his protection now and the source of all blessing. And then we get that vow in verses 20 to 22. I wonder what you've made of it as it was being read out. This vow that is in the form of a prayer, it's a promise in a prayer. Verses 20 to 22. Wouldn't it be easier to think he was just making another deal? Is this the schemer coming back? Is this the deal maker? Back to his tricks? But the Hebrew wording here is more like Jacob is saying, not if you do all these things and I'm in, but given what you've said, given what you've promised, in the light of what you are saying, Lord, you will be my God. What you give to me, I will give back to you, 10%. He's, it's a vow in prayer form. It's taking God at his word, which is exactly what we do, isn't it, when we pray? Lord, give us today our daily bread. Why? Because God said he's going to give us. He's going to provide. So we turn that back into prayer. Lord, forgive me and I'll forgive others. Because that's his character. That's his nature. That's what he's calling us into. And God's vow, God's promise isn't a promise that will expire. It will outlast Jacob. It will continue. Once he's back, safe in Cana, it's not like cosmic travel insurance and we're back and that's done. No, it carries on. Now, chatting to some guys from Grace Church yesterday as we looked at this passage, one noticed in this part that Jacob, who had always been more interested in what he could get, is now promising to give to God. It's fascinating, isn't it? The grasper is losing his grip and becoming the giver. This is a sign of God's work in in a person's heart. He's not perfect. The journey ahead with God will continue to change and mature and humble him, as we'll see, but his heart is opening up. His loyalty is to the Lord. And this is great news for us today as a church. We have a God who initiates meeting us. The Lord who met Jacob is still meeting people today, throughout the world, even here in Manchester, in ordinary and unexpected places. One friend described an encounter with God when he was reading John's gospel in his bedroom, instructed by his RE teacher. And he was just overwhelmed. He said, I was overwhelmed reading John's gospel by Jesus' love for me. It changed everything. In his book, Unbroken, Louis Zamperini, the American World War II veteran and Olympic runner, said that his first encounter with God was crying out to him in a prayer as a shark attacked the life raft he was in, having ditched into the Pacific Ocean after his bomber aircraft crashed. It wasn't until many years later that he took that rescue seriously, that answered prayer, and that promise that he had made to God to serve him with his life. It was much later that he gave his life to Jesus and was transformed powerfully. Where I used to work, I think I've shown this before, where I used to work in Canada House, there's a massive map on the co-working space of Greater Manchester. You can see it slightly there. It doesn't do, the photo doesn't do it justice, but the details of the map 
the streets and the roads, the water um, lakes and reservoirs and stuff, they're, they're in black. But the map was made out of brushed brass, so it shone golden. And this was deliberate because the artist wanted to communicate that everywhere is precious to God. There's nowhere off limits to him. And he is with us. Church, are we going to sleepwalk through our days thinking God is not with us? Are we going to sleepwalk thinking he doesn't see or know what we're going through? Are we going to buy that lie? Jesus Christ promises to all who come to him that he is with us always. So how firmly are we standing on that promise? Perhaps you're here for the first time and this talk of encountering God just seems weird and unusual. Well, perhaps this starts an encounter that God wants to have with you. Even this morning, even in this school hall, it's him saying, stop. Where are you going? Why are you trying to do it alone? Come to me. Here at Grace Church, we want to be a church that helps you meet with God in whatever small way we can help that, whether it's answering questions, whether it's just sharing our lives and having hospitality, whether it's helping you practically. Wherever you then go, whatever you do with that, we hope we can just encourage you to take seriously meeting God. So why not use this next song that we're going to sing? I'm going to invite the band up so they can get ready. And... Um, Frank, if you could put the words up to the song, that would be helpful. This is a song called There is a Redeemer. <clears throat> and I was struck by it as I was preparing because it's so simple because it just acknowledges in all the stuff going on, there's one Redeemer who brings us to God, who knows what's going on and is at work in us. There is a Redeemer, Jesus, God's own son. And then later on in one of the verses, it states, when I stand in glory, I will see his face. That is a beautiful reality and hope. And there I'll serve my king forever in that holy place. Well, we serve that king forever starting now. And we know his face shines upon us, not because we deserve it, but because his son, the gate, the stairway, the shepherd, has given us a life called back to God to know him. Heavenly Father, would you, by your Holy Spirit, move us to take seriously your promises, to be transformed by them as Jacob was, knowing that you are the Lord who initiates and meets with us through your Son, Jesus Christ. I pray for each one of us, wherever we are, with loads of questions, with skepticism, with a life of living faithfully and actively trusting you, wherever we are, that again, Father, you would bless us. You would meet with us. You would change us. And that we would live lives of worship to you. Amen.